The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. Even the human genome, we now know, contains 8% viral DNA. This week on Science for the People, we're getting into a taxonomic tangle. We're talking with Julie Dunning-Hotop about how genes can hop from bacteria to bugs and beyond. But first, we're talking with David Quammen about his new book, The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. And my apologies right up front for what feels like the 90th time this year, I am recording this podcast with a terrible cold. Here we go anyway. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and those who hold her fast will be blessed. This phrase from Proverbs 3.18 is a well-known biblical sentiment, but the tree of life doesn't stop there. It appears in many of the world's religions, and it appears, most famously perhaps, in science, with Darwin's famous tree of life, where species evolve over millions of years from a common ancestor in the trunk to new species in the branches. But while Darwin's tree of life endures in textbooks, t-shirts, and tattoos, science has moved on, and the tree of life has become more of a, I don't know, a bush, a spider web, (laughs) a complete and total snarl. Here to untangle the threads of this scientific coil (laughs) is David Quammen. He's the author of many books, including the wonderful books Spillover and The Song of the Dodo. He has also written for Harper's, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, and other very impressive outlets. He's a contributing writer for National Geographic, and now he's here to talk about his new book, The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Bethany, thank you. It's great to be with you and also fun. (laughs) First of all, I wanted to talk about this whole tree of life thing, which is much older than Darwin's famous drawing. Where did our idea that life was arranged like a tree come from? Well, you mentioned the the phrase in Proverbs. It's also in the book of Revelation, the tree of life. So it's an old phrase. It's an old trope, an old metaphor. Um, But in terms of representing Uh, the diversity of life on Earth, it's newer. There is a pre-evolutionary version of that. Uh, Originally, it was the ladder of life or the scala naturi of Aristotle, the idea that creatures were arranged in a hierarchical order, starting from microbes going up to sea anemones, progressing to simple uh, other forms of animals, and finally at the apogee, humans, yeah! and then the, the ladder of life, as, uh, as knowledge increased and people became aware of much more biological diversity around the planet, a ladder wasn't good enough anymore, so it became a tree to capture two things, I think, to capture the diversity of life on Earth and to capture the fact that that diversity also involved clusters of similarity, similar species. It seemed somehow to, to deserve being arranged with one another. So in the 18th and very early 19th century, you had people like uh, Charles Bonnet. Well, he was still sort of a ladder-of-life fellow, but Augustin Augier, a, uh, a, a French botanist in the early, early 19th century, um, drawing a, uh, an arbre botanique, a, a tree of plants, as a way of arranging what was known about the diversity of plants on Earth in a tree-shaped form. 
but with no implication of, of descent or evolutionary lineage. I find that kind of surprising, people drawing trees of life and not implying anything by the fact that two branches join here. Yes, I agree. It seems like one of those conclusions that howls out if you've got these diverse creatures, these species of plants, these clusters of species of plants on a tree-shaped figure, and, and as I say when I talk about um, uh, Augier's uh, Arbre Botanique, it looks a little bit like a menorah, but there are, there are not just you know branches, there are branches from the branches. Um, it does seem, in retrospect, you know, it's always 20-20 eyesight in, in, in hindsight, um, you would think that they might say, well, do these all come from the bottom, from that single trunk? Is there some relatedness? What's going on there? But it wasn't until really Lamarck, in the, also in, in contemporary with Augustin, in the early 19th century, and then, of course, Darwin in the mid-19th century, who said, wait a minute, the tree, the tree captures more than a way to organize diversity it tells us something or reflects a story about where diversity has come from. And there was Darwin, who, you know, the famous I think, which I, yeah. I think about <laughs> half my friends have that tattoo. Um, but after Darwin, there were many other trees of life. People didn't just take Darwin's word for it. Can right. you take us through a few of these different species of life trees how did they yes, differ but, from each other but can i back up briefly in case you're i know exactly what you're talking about with the darwin i think image but maybe not everybody does 1837 charles darwin just back from the voyage of the beagle ruminating cogitating about the possibility of transmutation as he called evolution and he draws this little stick figure tree in his private B notebook, um, secret notebook on, on transmutation. Uh, he draws a stick figure tree with letters on the branches, A, B, C, D, and he writes above it, I think. And what that was, was essentially the very first evolutionary tree of life, private in his notebook. And then eventually there was another tree of life in the origin of species in 1859. Okay. So, but back to your question, forward from that there have been other trees of life, right? Yeah. And I was wondering if you could kind of run through a couple of them, in particular, the psychedelic, which is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> the psychedelic. Well, the great Lynn Margulis, a wonderful, wonderful evolution, or excuse me, microbiologist uh, named Lynn Margulis. Um, she published a paper in 1967, published it after rejection by, according to her account, 15 journals, in the 16th, she published this paper on, um, oh, let's see, the title of it. Was this one, On the Origin of Mitosing Cells? Either that was the title or that was the title of her book. Uh, I think that was the title, On the Origin of Mitosing Cells. Uh, mitosing cells, complex cells, eukaryotic cells, cells with cell nuclei, the cells that compose all of us, animals, plants, fungi. Um she had revived a fascinating theory about how complex cells came to be. And it involved simpler cells like bacterial cells with no cell nuclei and no real internal anatomy to speak of. Um, 
bacterial cells perhaps swallowing, one swallowing another and internalizing a bacterium, single one, one in history, uh, that replicated and became an internal organ, organ, and cell biologists call it an organelle, but it's an organ like our livers and kidneys and, and pancreas, um, an organ that was crucial to all complex cells, the mitochondrion, which packages energy. And then this theory involved another capture of a bacterium or several captures of different bacteria, of, of similar bacteria that became chloroplasts in plants doing all of the photosynthesis in plants. So it's a theory of these two uh, epically consequential captures of bacteria inside another cell, creating complex cells, uh, and by becoming symbiotic with the cell in which they lived. Uh, hence the term endosymbiosis, Lynn Margulis's term for this theory. And when she published her book on this in 1970, Yale University Press, um, Origins of the Eukaryotic Cell, uh, there was a drawing at the front of it by um, a fellow named Laszlo, I can't remember, Polish name, I think. Um, and it shows a tree of life that involves not just branching and divergence, but for one of the very first times, convergence limbs moving into one another coming together a limb flowing into another limb which was unheard of in the classic darwinian tree which is all about divergence and so this was this great um i forget what you called it but it's kind of a hippie it's, it's kind of a 1970s hippie drawing of the tree of life it looks like something that r crumb might have done uh, and it's it's great and there's a pic there's a, an image of it in my book yeah, and uh, this kind of brings to light some of the things that you describe in your book, some of the problems with these trees of life, because the trees of life that started with Darwin and then continued on through many other scientists doing their own versions, they were kind of associated and based on this whole idea of taxonomy that we associate with like Carl Linnaeus and which most of us probably learned as kids, you mm -hmm. know, your kingdom phylum class order family genus species, which I always yep. remember with the mnemonic kings play cars on fat green stools. <laughs> Very good. I don't have that mnemonic. I have to have to labor through those. And it's a good one. Um, yeah. But it, obviously it had become clear by the time Lynn Margulis published her book that the usual branching trees of life just weren't working. What was wrong with them? What was wrong with them was that they were all about branching. They were all about divergence and they did not allow for convergence because they were modeled on living earthly trees. And a tree on planet Earth has limbs and branches that diverge. And the branches diverge into smaller branches and the smaller branches diverge into twigs. And then you have leaves out on the end. And those represent biological diversity currently living on planet Earth, the canopy of the tree of life. But there's never convergence. But then beginning in the 50s, with uh, probably with Joshua and Edith um, and Esther Lederberg and uh, Norton Zinder, and going into the 70s with Carl Woese, my central character, but importantly also with Lynn Margulis in the 60s and 70s, you had ideas that involved convergence of genetic lineages, coming together of genetic lineages and not just diverging. You had the idea of endosymbiosis, 
wherein bacterial genomes were captured by the eukaryote genome, the genome of complex life, and became internalized. So that was a convergence. And then you had discoveries of this phenomenon that began this whole project for me. I'd never heard of it before 2013. It's an unimaginable phenomenon, but it's wonderfully real. Horizontal gene transfer, HGT, horizontal gene transfer, meaning genes moving sideways across species boundaries, even from one form of life into another form of life that's not closely related across entire kingdoms of life, genes moving sideways from one genome into another, horizontally, not vertically, as in from parent to offspring. And so suddenly the classic Darwinian branching tree of life, and it was also the tree of life of, of neo-Darwinism, the modern synthesis throughout the first three quarters of the 20th century, suddenly that didn't get it, that didn't cut it. That was right in rough outline, but it missed these very important events of convergence. And you were talking a little bit about Carl Woese. I want to go back to him because he took on a little bit of this issue of taxonomy, um, which I find to be kind of so adorably pedantic. Um, <laughs> Carl Woese mm -hmm. is the, the scientist that drives a lot of your book. And he did not discover endosymbiosis or horizontal gene transfer. He's actually right. most famous for establishing archaea as a right. domain of life. And before we were talking about kingdoms and phyla and genus and species, what is a domain? A domain is a new category uh, invented to to, um, uh, to essentially uh, adapt uh, to the the new discovery that Woese had made to to embrace the new discovery that Woese had made and announced in 1977 that he had discovered a separate form of life a new, at first he called it a new kingdom of life, a third form of life. Until then, it was thought that there were two kinds of life, as your listeners probably know well, most people don't, prokaryotes and eukaryotes. Uh, prokaryotes, simple cells with no cell nuclei, only unicellular creatures. Eukaryotes, complex cells with cell nuclei and internal organs, and including all of the um, the multicellular creatures, including us, including animals, plants, fungi, and all the complex, uh, the, uh, the other complex creatures in that group. So there were two, two big limbs of the tree of life, essentially bacteria and everything else. Woes comes along using his, his unique curiosity and his unique methodology and asking deeper questions than anybody else had asked. And he, which, which were essentially, what are what was the shape of life at the very beginning and can we learn the shape of life at the very beginning from looking at um, extant molecules long complex molecules as they exist in living creatures and comparing the sequences of one to another proteins dna rna those were woes's questions and so he discovers this new group this new kingdom of life that's not bacteria and it's not eukaryotes it's something else, and they come to be known as the archaea. Uh, they are single-celled. They look like bacteria through a microscope, but if you sequence even fragments of their genome, as Woes did, you suddenly realize, as he did, as he said to a friend, Ralph, these things aren't even bacteria. There's something completely different, not only drastically different from bacteria, but more similar to us in their genomic information 
than they are to bacteria. And yet they are single-celled creatures that through a microscope look like bacteria, archaea. So I wanted to kind of dig into these archaea just a little bit because they are prokaryotes like bacteria, but Mm -hmm. genetically they're more like us. What makes archaea different from bacteria and more like us? What is it about their DNA that is different? The first signal was Woes was breaking their uh, one particular molecule, a, uh, a Rosetta Stone molecule. It was an RNA molecule, not a DNA molecule, but it contained a, a genomic sequence. Um, he was breaking that into pieces and sequencing those pieces because this was the 1970s and it was so difficult to sequence anything. And we could talk about his methodology. It's a wonderful, her- heroic, crazy story. Um, but looking at their these fragments, these paragraphs excerpted from their genome, he looked at them. He, he sequenced one particular critter that was supposedly a bacterium, and he looked at it and he said, this is not a bacterium. This is not even close. It's missing these crucial fragments of genome. It's not a bacterium. And so that was the first discovered archaeon. Um, and then he sequenced some more. All these things at the beginning lived in extreme environments low oxygen environments where they metabolized carbon dioxide and produced methane, um, highly acidic environments, highly high thermal hot springs, uh, very salty environments. These, these things, they were extremophiles, extremity-loving creatures. And so he sequenced them and he found that they were all a group and they all differed by their genomes from bacteria. But then um, the German microbiologist came in you know, Woese announced this and a lot of people thought he was crazy and that this was an insupportable discovery. But then there were German microbiologists who had been working on these things and, and some of them were biochemists and they said, you're right, these things are very different in biochemical terms. For instance, their cell walls. There's this important molecule, a kind of molecule that's in all bacterial cell walls, fancy name peptidoglycan, none of it in the cell walls of the Archaeans. There's another thing. There are they're, they're fats. They're lipids in the Archaeans. Most uh, of the, the fats or the lipids, in, and this is getting into the weeds a little bit, but the weeds is where your, your audience lives, and, and I, I get that. They're science-savvy people. Um, bacteria and eukaryotes uh, have ester-linked lipids, and the Archaeans have ether-linked lipids. And if I looked that up on Google, I could refresh my memory as to what that means. But ester-linked <laughs> as opposed to ether-linked. And no peptidoglycan. So at the biochemical level, the Germans were saying, yes, woes, woes, you're right, you're right. Keep faith. You're right. There is something, and we've detected it too, that's completely different about these little single-celled bugs that had been mistaken for bacteria for the last 150 years. And those were the archaea. And they were called archaea, as in archaic, as in archaeology, because they were thought to be perhaps descendants of the very oldest forms of life on Earth. And are they? Well, we don't know yet. We don't know. Uh, Bacteria are very old. Archaea are very old. But one of the things that's new, part of the breaking news on this, is that people who study archaea and the tree of life are now saying that it seems to be an archaean cell that captured the bacteria by endosymbiosis to become complex cells 
And so archaea are, it looks like, the host cells that led to humans. So these things that were unknown to exist before 1977 are now strongly suggested as being the real basis of our deepest ancestry 3.5, 3.8 billion years ago. That's controversial, but there's, there's some very strong evidence that tends to support it. Before archaea, many scientists would have said, well, first of all, you know, that we originally come from bacteria. And they would have said, oh, that a species is one that keeps its genes to itself, passing them on to offspring, <laughs> but not to other unrelated species. Yes. Archaea do not have time for this nonsense of human definitions. <laughs> well, Can we talk about how they made, how archaea made scientists rethink the concept of species? Well, it was archaea, but it was also bacteria and it was also eukaryotes. Um, in, you know, starting in the 1950s with the Letterbergs, and then with other people in the 60s and 70s, including Carl Woese, and then into the, into the 90s when genome sequencing started to be really efficient and fast and inexpensive, people were discovering that this phenomenon that I mentioned, horizontal gene transfer. First of all, they confirmed Lynn Margulis's theory, her, her theory, her microbiological theory based on visual evidence that endosymbiosis had occurred and that that bacteria had been captured and had been um, turned into internal organs of complex cells. That was confirmed using molecular data and the, the methodology that had been patched together by Carl Woese. That was confirmed on the molecular dimension as well as the microscopical dimension, which was a big deal, um, remind, telling us more forcefully that the tree of life is not shaped like a tree, exactly. And, uh, and then there were all these, these other discoveries of horizontal gene transfer, not just in archaea, not just in bacteria, but also in eukaryotes, so that now we know things have been moving sideways. Even the human genome, we now know, contains 8% viral DNA that has come in through captured retroviruses that have gotten into not just into our immune cells the way HIV does, but into our reproductive cells and become incorporated there over the course of evolution of the mammal line, particularly the placental mammals. And some of those viral genes now are crucial for human biology, including pregnancy, human reproduction. Your book has actually received some criticism, which you noted. Yeah on yeah. Twitter and in the New York Times for focusing mostly on white men and for emphasizing Lynn Margulis's marriage um, and for really kind of emphasizing her and some of the other women's kind of more personal attributes as opposed to Carl Woese's, you know, where you barely right. talk about his marriage. Do you feel that it might have been better to kind of delve into both or delve into neither? Well, this is a good question, I'm a, and I, I welcome the chance to talk about it. First of all, I, I don't believe in complaining about reviews, um, so I have no complaints about reviews. Um, secondly, um, I do talk about the personal lives of other characters in this book. I talk about the personal life of Edward Hitchcock, uh, um, an early drawer of non uh, evolutionary trees of life. I talk a bit about the personal life of Oswald Avery. Uh, I talk about the personal life of, of some other characters who happen to be male. I talk about Lynn's personal life. I don't talk much about Woes's family life, his wife and children, because he didn't write about them. 
And I decided, and they are alive, he's not, and, and I decided to grant them their privacy and write about his science. But um, the basic question, I think, is really very important and valid. Do, do women get a different deal than men in science or in any other profession, you know, journalism, law? Of course they do. And it's, and it's a really serious, delicate problem, and we need to deal with it. And, and I, 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 take, I get it, and I respect that problem. There are more uh, male characters in my book than female characters, as observed rightly in that review. But my book is essentially a history of molecular phylogenetics in the 20th century, and to some degree, a history of pre-molecular phylogenetics, tree of life ideas, in the 19th century. So, was molecular phylogenetics in the 20th century inhospitable to women, unwelcoming, um, offering inadequate opportunities and inadequate encouragement? Absolutely. Absolutely it was. And that's reflected in my cast of characters. Should I have somewhere maybe paused and written a paragraph pointing that out? Uh, it seemed to me like it's, it's, it's pretty obvious that we know that women have suffered those um, shortages of opportunity and encouragement. But in retrospect, yeah, probably it would have been good for me to pause and, and write that paragraph. I did kind of want to bring it back around because we've got domains instead of kingdoms. We've got DNA that just transfers between cells with no regard for species. And we've also got bits of species inside other species. We've got these archaea. What does this mean for the tree of life? Is the well, idea of a tree even a useful one at all? Right, right. As I say near the end of the book, there are three categoricals, three absolutist ideas that have been embraced by uh, neo-Darwinian evolutionary biology for the last hundred years, and those are the idea of you know, 150 years going going back to um, Charles Darwin. Um, first of all, the idea of species: a species is a discrete and unitary entity. Yes, it's a yes, it's a population of individuals, but it's a club with a fixed membership. So a species is discrete and real. Second categorical, an individual. An individual is discrete, unitary, and real. Third categorical, the history of life is shaped like a tree, branching, diverging, 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 yielding diversity. And now we know, thanks to Lynn Margulis and Carl Woese and Ford Doolittle and a lot of other scientists, that all three of those categoricals are wrong. They're not, ab they're not totally wrong, but they are wrong at the categorical level. They are not absolutely right, as we have been told to believe in them. And the third of those, the tree of life, the the, the takeaway is that um, the tree of life is not a tree. There is a strong tree-like signal. Yes, common origins for, for all forms of life, a single genetic code. Yes, major, major limbs branching off, bacteria, archaea, eukaryotes. Yes, but then the tree diverging, 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 and only diverging that's wrong because there's lots of converging unless you and unless you understand the converging and incorporate that into your model your image you are you are misunderstanding the history of life so it's like a tree drawn by dr seuss with yes 
Yes, or or Morris Escher. <laughs> and I also wanted to talk about some of the characters that your book centers around. And in particular, a lot of your book centers around Carl Woos, who seems like a very interesting scientist. He died in 2012, and you never got to talk to him. Instead, you did a lot of your reporting from people who knew him. And it was very interesting because he apparently felt overlooked in his work, and he would say stuff like, they'll never ignore me again, and there are hints in the book that he wasn't always the greatest guy to work with. And I was kind of wondering, after spending so much time writing about him, what do you think of him? Well, I think he's a wonderfully complex character and a fascinating and very important scientist. I mean, I call him sometimes the most important biologist of the 20th century that you've never heard of, because most people have never heard of Carl R. Woese. In spring of 2013, I had not, I'd written three books or so about evolution. I had never heard about Carl R. Woese. Bad on me. And then I picked up the thread of horizontal gene transfer and started working backwards along that thread into the sweater. And I discovered that he was this guy who made this big discovery in 77 and even more importantly pioneered this methodology for doing molecular phylogenetics, discerning the tree of life using long the sequence of units and long molecules and influenced a lot of people. Um, and uh, he and so I say in the book that he was like my citizen Kane and not everybody has seen that movie, but anybody who hasn't seen Citizen Kane should. Uh, it's a mystery story about understanding the real truth of one complex individual, difficult, brilliant individual. And there's a, there's a reporter who goes back and tries, after this guy's death, to put together the, the different versions and create a rounded, true picture of this guy. And I'm like that reporter. I have been like that reporter. So Woz was dead before I picked up his trail. I went to his postdocs. I went to his graduate students, his assistants, his colleagues, his friends, and asked them what was the meaning of this guy, what was the truth of this guy, what was the nature of this guy? What was important about his discoveries? And, and, and that's what, and, and he could be a bear. He could be an awful person. He could be a wonderful person. Uh, he was an important scientist, but he was needy. He wanted to believe he was not only important, but more important than Charles Darwin. He never won a Nobel Prize because evolutionary biologists generally don't win Nobel Prizes. There's no category for them. Uh, he died somewhat solitary and bitter. And yet I'm now hearing now that the book is out, I'm hearing from people who, who are telling me stories about what a wonderful man Carl Woese could be on a very private level. And I love that. I love the fact that he's so complicated that the book is published and I'm still learning new things about him. Well, David, I wish we could talk more about this, but I'm afraid we're out of time. Thank you so much, though. This has been incredibly interesting. Bethany, thank you. I love talking with you about this, and I appreciate your interest. We've linked to more information about David Quammen and his book, The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life, at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, we're going to hear more about how genes don't have any time for our species distinctions. We're going to talk about how genes can transfer from bacteria to bugs and even to humans. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, 
or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at signsforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've talked a bit about how our new understanding of different life forms, such as archaea, has changed what we always thought a species was. But another bit of biological weirdness has also contributed to our new understanding. It's called lateral gene transfer, the idea that bits of DNA can hop from one species to another. You might learn in high school now that tiny bits of DNA can hop from one bacteria to another. But it turns out it doesn't stop there. They can hop right into bigger stuff, too, from bacteria to bugs, and maybe even to people. Here to help us bounce along with the bacterial DNA is Julie Dunning-Hotop, a genome scientist at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And she's the scientist who showed that genes could jump from bacteria to everything else. Julie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start with lateral gene transfer, aka horizontal gene transfer. Can you explain what that is exactly? Yeah, so it's the movement of DNA uh, between diverse organisms. So my group focuses a lot on the movement of DNA from bacterial genomes into animal genomes, but it can also be animal genomes to animal genomes or Um, bacteria to bacteria. But the important thing is that there is no sex involved. So it can't occur from um, organisms sexually reproducing. It has to occur by a different mechanism. And this is specifically from one species to another not closely related species, correct? Exactly. I mean, they could be closely related species. They could be like fish, but it can't occur by something called introgression, um, which is when you get the movement of DNA uh, between different species that can actually um, have sexual reproduction. And this often we first found out lateral gene transfer can be a thing between bacteria. Can you describe how that works? Yeah, so um, I think this was really first discovered actually and studied before we even knew what DNA really was. The DNA was the molecule that was responsible for inheritance. Uh, and it was in experiments done um, in classical microbiology by Avery and McLeod that showed that you could transform Streptococcus pneumoniae, which are bacteria that cause um, infections, uh, and that you could transform them with this um Molecule, And at the time, they didn't know what that molecule is, but today we know that it's DNA. And really, um, in public health, probably the most important uh, example of lateral gene transfer is actually the movement of antibiotic resistance genes between different clinical isolates, um, which is a, a very large uh, public health problem today. Right. So you have your antibiotic resistance genes that jump from, say, one staph cell to like E. coli. Exactly. And you get the accumulation of lots of resistance genes in a single organism. And that organism can no longer respond. uh, Like the the disease caused by that organism is no longer treatable with um, antibiotics. And when you transfer genes via lateral gene transfer from bacteria to bacteria, this seems relatively easy in concept because bacteria are single-celled, right? So you've only got the one cell 
to deal with, but you work with transfer of genes to larger animals, multicellular animals. What are some of the challenges with trying to do lateral gene transfer to sponges and bugs and worms? Right. So, yeah, that's a really, that's a really, um, that's one of the reasons why people thought originally that you would not have lateral gene transfer from, for instance, bacteria to animals, right? So, yes, a bacteria is a, a single cell. There are single cell eukaryotes, but they're even more, com- they are more complicated than a bacteria because they have things like a nuclear envelope. Um, so not only do you have to get transfer of the DNA into the cell, but you have to get transfer of the DNA into the nucleus. Um, so yes, that was very, that, that, that was thought to be kind of an insurmountable barrier. And, you know, if you think about animals, you need to not only get the DNA into a, a eukaryotic cell and then into the nucleus. Um, but you have to have that actually happen in a germ cell. Um, and so you have to, you know, in order for it to ever be inherited by the entire organism, uh, at least when we're talking about inherited lateral gene transfers. And so, yes, there's, there's numerous barriers um, just physically, but then there's also the molecular barriers. So whenever you have lateral gene transfer, the DNA um, typically looks different when it moves into the other organism. So um, bacteria can actually protect their genomes from lateral gene transfer um, because it actually can be deleterious. It's not actually always beneficial. Um, And so they have protection mechanisms, things like restriction modification systems, CRISPR-Cas9, all sorts of just defensive mechanisms. And in addition, like, so they can tell that the DNA looks different But um, even if they can't specifically tell that DNA looks different by like CRISPR-Cas9, it's going to have different properties. Um, So it's going to have a different GC content. It's going to have a different dinucleotide repeat. Um, And so all those things also make the DNA look different. And when you go from a bacteria to a eukaryote, you don't have the same sequences for things like transcription or translation. Um, eukaryotic genes typically have introns, bacterial genes don't. So all of a sudden you start having genes being transcribed that can't be spliced or maybe are spliced and they shouldn't be. So there's lots of different barriers along the way to actually having it happen and actually having it be functional. So what you're saying is that like when you want to transfer a gene from a bacterium to say an animal, you can't just put it in like the animal's skin cell because I mean, you can, but it's just not going to go anywhere. It's going to end with that animal and with that skin cell. So you need to get it into the sperm or the egg if you're dealing with a mammal. And then also the genes themselves, are they different languages or kind of different accents? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, and I don't know that we know the answer to that. I think sometimes they probably are different languages and other times they're just different accents. And you first went looking for lateral gene transfer from bacteria to other things. And you began to look specifically in insects. Why did you think that lateral gene transfer to larger multicellular organisms might exist? So, um, my 
paper, although it's like often cited as like kind of the paper that showed this first, isn't actually the first example where this was demonstrated. So there was a previous paper um, by uh, Fukatsu's group in PNAS that showed um, evidence that there was a Wolbachia DNA integration into a bean beetle. And that had been criticized uh, because of the methods that they um, used, which they were state-of-the-art methods. It's just the, the limitation of the methods and the technology at that time. And so um, he had already demonstrated that there was the chance that this happened. And there were also some underappreciated um, papers that actually I didn't know about who had already shown this actually in nematodes, which are worms that are, are you know, kind of very similar to insects in many ways um, in terms of where they are on the animal tree and their complexity. And so um, it, we weren't the first example. Um, so we, we did have some literature to like kind of formulate our thoughts. Um, and I had uh, seen evidence in this genome project I was asked to uh, be involved in and do analysis of that there was bacterial DNA connected to insect DNA, and in particular, insect retrotransposons, gypsy trans retrotransposons. And so we thought that there was either a profound amount of genome misassembly, uh, and that was one hypothesis, or that there was either movement of the bacterial DNA into the insect or movement of the insect DNA into the bacteria. So it could have happened either way. So then we started undertaking experiments to really demonstrate, hey, this happened in that one insect. And so we we predominantly focused on that one insect. It's related to Drosophila melanogaster, but it's not Drosophila melanogaster. That's a fruit um, fly, right? That's a fruit fly, yep. Um, a very well-studied fruit fly. Um, and so we predominantly focused on that organism with really in-detail de experiments. And then one of our reviewers actually asked us to do a, a larger survey. And so it was in the process of doing that larger survey of all the insect and nematode genomes that were available at that time that we were able to say that this was much more widespread. Um, we could demonstrate in Drosophila ananasiae, which is the fruit fly we were looking at, that it was widespread across the globe, or at least across wide swaths of Asia. And we were also able to show that this happened, that, that there was there was genomic data that this happened in both nematodes and um, insects. And then we were able to validate it in numerous different nematodes and insects. Um, and you mentioned that one of the reasons that you were looking at nematodes and well and insects in particular was because of this thing called Wolbachia. What is Wolbachia? Yeah, so Wolbachia is an endosymbiont of um, insects and, and some nematodes, um, or maybe arthropods and more more generally, and then some nematodes. Uh, and it's um, it's really been studied um for numerous reasons, like it's it's fascinating for multiple reasons. Uh, one reason is that it can manipulate host sex, uh, so it can cause uh, feminization where males turn into females. It can cause male killing where it kills males. Uh, it can cause parthenogenesis where you can get virgin females having offspring, um, and then it can also cause this. Um, 
phenotype called cytoplasmic incompatibility. And all these traits encourage transmission of the endosymbiont. And then it's also been discovered that Wolbachia is really important to filarial nematodes. So we can now treat filarial diseases with doxycycline because we kill the endosymbiont and that kills the nematode. And these are some really important neglected tropical diseases. And then lastly, well, maybe not lastly, because there are other reasons why Wolbachia are interesting, but a lot of people may have heard about it in the news because of um, efforts to eradicate viruses like dengue and chikungunya and Zika, where Wolbachia can be put into mosquitoes and those mosquitoes are less likely to then be infected by the viruses and you can use it as an eradication uh, tool. And so Wolbachia has been studied for those uh, reasons. Uh, and it turns out that Wolbachia also seems to give its DNA to its hosts. And so that's what we've uh, predominantly focused on. And it seems to be Unlike a lot of other endosymbionts, it seems to be fairly unique in being able to do this so um, extensively. And you mentioned it's an endosymbiont, so it lives inside these other organisms. Is it a bacteria? It's a bacteria. It's a... uh, it's a, a gram-negative bacteria. It's fairly small, and it has a fairly small genome. It's not that small considering it's an endosymbiont because sometimes they have really small genomes, but it does have a, a smaller genome than, like, for instance, a free-living organism. Okay, so you did look, and you actually found that insects basically have bits of Wolbachia bacteria just hanging out inside their genome. <laughs> yes, Exactly. Just like hanging there. What, what do and, those bits and do? Bits, well, bits might be an understatement because they're actually really large pieces in some cases. So we've now shown that in that Drosophila, there's essentially whole chromosomes that are there, whole bacterial chromosomes inside of an insect chromosome uh, and multiple copies of the genes. And, and with what you just asked, what do they do? We're not sure that they do anything um, in in nematodes and in insects, uh, there's not a lot of evidence yet that they have any function. So, but you also mentioned that um, one of the challenges of transferring to like animal uh, DNA, transferring, you know, bacterial genes to animal DNA is that they can kick that whole thing out. Like they can, they can defend themselves. So why do they allow these bits to get in if they can defend themselves? So, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Um, You know, so, you know, in evolutionary biology, things happen and there's no reason. There may be a mechanism by which it happens, but not necessarily a mechanism that explains why something still is present today. Um, There's a kind of a, I don't know if it's a theory or a hypothesis that if DNA is not essential and there's large repeats that it should recombine and be lost. And what I don't currently understand is, for instance, in Drosophila ananaceae, where we don't yet have any evidence that these lateral gene transfers are functional. They're on a, a chromosome that's largely not functional. 
um, and you have these large repeats, why they don't recombine and get lost. Um, so recombination is a process by which you can actually remove things from the genome if you have two homologous sequences um, and nothing is essential between those homologous sequences. That doesn't seem to be happening. Now, it might be that it's because the chromosome's heterochromatic and so there's less recombination when a chromosome's heterochromatic. But why does it get in so extensively or get duplicated once it gets in and why is it does it not seem to be lost are really good questions that we don't have answers to. And it's a lot of the Wolbachia genome in some cases. I think in one case you mentioned 90% of the Wolbachia genome, like these flies are like half man, half Wolbachia, <laughs> half man, half yeah, machine. Yeah, no, I mean... <laughs> Actually, it's 100% uh, in Drosophila ananasi. 100% of the genome's there. Um, almost the entire genome is there at least twice. And large portions of the genome are there eight times. Uh, and we think all essentially on one chromosome. Uh, it's chromosome four. Um, and it's actually not a, it's, it's, the chromosome four is actually largely filled with sequences that are not thought to be functional. Um, it's just mind blowing to think about knowing that these animals are walking around with like whole bacteria in their DNA. I mean, not actual bacteria, but you know, whole bacterial genes <laughs> just sitting there. Yes, yes, it is mind blowing. And it's actually mind blowing to also think about like how much energy that insect must put into making that DNA because it nucleotides are not cheap to make. And so I think I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say 20% of that chromosome we think is probably of bacterial origin. Yet, you know, maybe there's no function. Like, how much energy do you put into making this DNA that's never, never going to benefit you? Um, so that's really mind blowing as well. But some of these bugs, the acquired genes, do have jobs, like the coffee berry coffee berry borer. Yes. Uh, it, it's acquired genes do have jobs. <laughs> yes, and it has a really important job. So the example of the coffee berry borer is, um, so this is an insect and it parasitizes coffee beans. Um, so it's the nemesis Foul that everybody fiend. who likes a good... How could it? <laughs> exactly. I don't drink coffee, so I'm fine with the coffee berry borer. I will um, wipe but... them from the face of the earth. <laughs> But there are related insects, very closely related insects to the coffee berry borer that cannot parasitize coffee beans. Um, and it's thought that one of the key enzymes to actually that allows the coffee berry borer to actually um, eat the, the coffee beans uh, is this mannanase gene. Um, so mannan is actually something that's in lots of plants and it uh, protects from um, insects or other organisms. Um, it protects the plant. And what the coffee berry borer can do is actually use a mannanase gene that is acquired from, I think it's a bacteria in this case, um, and it um, is able to break down that mannan and then actually be able to parasitize coffee beans, where it's related, the related insect from a sister taxa does not have the mannanase gene and cannot do this. And we've actually shown um, that the brown marmorated stink bug, which lots of people know um, who are on the east coast of the United States, um, is a very in invasive organism uh, in North America over the past decade, that it may also have mannanase genes that it acquired from bacteria. And it, 
we think it might use those mayonnaise genes to actually um, feed on soybeans. Um, so uh, brown marmorous stink bugs are are very good at feeding on soybeans. They actually suck the beans right out of the pods. And those beans are um, high in mannan. And we think those mannanase genes, of which they have numerous actually that seem to be from bacteria, that those mannanase genes may be really important for that. So um, it might be that there's multiple organisms that can actually do the same thing. And we see that with uh, plant parasitic nematodes. Multiple plant parasitic nematodes have acquired the same genes that allow them to live on uh, the plants that they parasitize. And we've been talking about nematodes and insects, and you published these findings on nematodes and insects back in 2007. Have you been looking for lateral gene transfer in other species since then? What have you found? Yeah, so... Um so this, these, so some of these results are other people's results. They're not all my results. Um, so, you know, we started working on this in insects and nematodes. And then, yeah, we have been looking at other organisms. So one of the, the problems with looking at other organisms is that there's a lot of um, genome sequences from organisms that cause crop damage that are medically important, um, but not always a lot of sequencing data from intervening organisms. So for instance, it might be interesting to look at, hey, is there evidence of lateral gene transfer in amphibians or reptiles? But there hasn't been enough data to really do that. But we did look at humans because there's a lot of human data. And really, you can think about lateral gene transfer in multiple ways in humans. One is the type we've been talking about where it's inherited, where it's transmitted to the offspring and it has to happen in a germ cell. Uh, but you can also think about it happening in a somatic cell. And if it happens in a somatic cell, like a skin cell or a gut cell, it has the potential like other genetic processes to be mutagenic. And so one of the things we've looked at is, okay, does bacterial DNA enter human cells and integrate into the genome uh, and possibly serve as an, another form of, of mutation? Um, and we use cancer cells as our way of doing that because when you have a when you have cancer, you have a clonally expanding population of cells. So that gives us a lot of cells of the same type that might have the same mutation uh, in order to, for us to be able to detect it. Because if it just happens once, it's really hard to, for us to detect and have any confidence. We need to be able to get cells, lots of cells that have this. And so cancer might be a good model for that. So we look, we've, we've looked at cancer data. And we think we see evidence for it. The problem is we can only see it computationally so far. We haven't been able to reproduce it. Um, we haven't been able to get samples where we have that same level of confidence that there might be a bacterial DNA integration in the human cells and actually have access to the sample to actually do the validation. Because oftentimes with human data, you're using data that other people have generated. So you don't have access to those samples to do the validation. Um, so. I think the jury's still out about whether or not it happens and how frequently it happens and how important it is, but we've seen some evidence that it might happen. And to be clear, this would not be from Wolbachia. Like these genes would not be from Wolbachia because we don't we don't have Wolbachia, right? 
No, we don't have Wolbachia. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw Wolbachia, but for various reasons. Because, like, for instance, lice have Wolbachia. Um, <laughs> there are there are organisms that have Wolbachia, like like Wolbachia-like organisms do infect humans. You have organisms like Anaplasma, Arlichia, Neorakatia that are all very closely related to Wolbachia and cause diseases. We have not seen any evidence from any of those organisms, though. We haven't seen any evidence from Wolbachia. Um, I guess I would be surprised if I saw Wolbachia, but there are there are mechanisms by which it could possibly happen. It just would be unlikely. The organisms we see it from also don't, uh, they, they wouldn't be the organisms I would have expected. Um, so um, whether that's, you know, a good thing or a bad thing, it's hard to say. Is there, and is there a point where we might say, okay, if this, lateral gene transfer that we've had since, you know, before humans were humans, since before primates were primates, maybe we were all, I don't know, something that looked like a lemur. Um, you know, it, at that point, maybe it was originally from a bacteria millions and millions of years ago, but now is it is it just us? Is there a point where we just say, oh, it's been here long enough that it's it's us now? Right. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. And where is that point? Like, we have that problem even with in our group about talking about the Wolbachia transfers, because they're so recent that it's hard to refer to them as insect DNA. Like we often refer to them as bacterial DNA in insect genomes, but actually they're insect DNA, right? So they are the insect's DNA, but yet we don't really talk about them as being part of the insect's DNA. And in fact, there are many researchers who remove that DNA before they even put the genome together. Um, so th that can even impede efforts of understanding how prevalent it is um, if there are... Um, if when people are removing contamination, they're kind of overzealous and remove things that could be lateral gene transfers. I mean, on the flip side, there have also been a lot of high profile studies where someone has claimed there has been lateral gene transfer in a genome. And then when people look at it further, either a lot of it or all of it is related to contamination of the genome sequencing project with DNA from other organisms. So it's like, when you sequence a DNA sequence, you have to go through and clean it and kind of, you know, clean out all the stuff because we're surrounded by bacteria. And when we create these genetic sequences, we have to make sure that none of them are getting in our sample by accident, because no matter how clean you get, you're not clean enough. Right. But even, but even, and then did you just remove DNA that isn't actually from the bacteria? It's actually from the genome, right? Like how do you draw, where do you draw that line? Um, yeah, because you can't, you can't antibiotic treat every organism you sequence. You can't, and even if you did, you probably wouldn't, they wouldn't be sterile, right? You can't sterilely rear every organism that you're going to sequence. Um, so we do the best that we can to, you know, try to minimize the amount of bacteria on animals when we are trying to find tissues that are less likely to have bacteria, but they're, they're still there. <laughs> um, well, Julie, thank you so much for being here. This research is fascinating. And now I'm sitting here wondering if any of my cells have little bug bits in them. <laughs> <laughs> well, most likely if they do, it won't ever matter to you. <laughs> I feel better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
We've linked to more information about Julie Dunning Hotop and her work at scienceforthepeople.ca. That's our website, where there's also links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can follow us around, you can subscribe to the show, you can leave us a five-star review telling us how much you love us, or leave us a five-star review telling us how much you hate us. That is also an option. We've also got a Patreon page, where you can support our hardworking crew and help us get better sound equipment with your monthly donation. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.